So Genesis 3 this morning. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful efforts. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Lord, we come to you this morning 
asking that you would work within us. Lord, it can be hard for us to slow down, to read at your word, to learn from it, to sit under it, Lord, for it to have its effect in us. So Lord, I ask that you would help us to slow down this morning and to just sit and to be with you, to learn from you. Lord, your word says that uh, your word is living and effective. Lord, it also says that it does not return void. And so I ask this morning that it would work within us. As we look at the origin of sin and what it is and what it means for us, Lord, I pray that you would continue to help us to look to you. Help us to look to the Son. Lord, help us this morning. Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me. Lord, work within me. Lord, work within each of us in this room. Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, continue to encourage us and help us to live the Christian life because we can only do so through you. Lord, again, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for who you are and what you have done for us, Lord. Speak to us this morning. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. If I were to ask you to describe sin, how would you describe it? Or if I were to ask you to give me a definition for sin, how would you define it? I believe that's an important question for each and every one of us to ask. Last week, I quoted the 20th century pastor, A.W. Tozer, when he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think that along the same vein, kind of on the the flip side of that, what we think about sin will have an incredible impact on our lives. It will affect our view of the world, how it works, how it operates, and how we think it should operate. It will affect how we go about our day-to-day life, how we live, how we work, how we play. It will affect how we operate as Christians as we pursue God. And it will set up your understanding of the gospel, either for good or for bad. So how would you define or describe sin? What is sin? So today's passage will give us a clearer, deeper understanding of sin. The narrative of this passage is broken up into three sections. In the first section, we'll see the nature of sin, what, what it is at its core, or the essence of sin. In the second section, we'll see the consequences of sin, or how it's affected, how it's changed our world. And finally, in the third section, we'll see the remedy to sin. What is the cure for sin? So, before we do that, the main idea for this morning, of the overall message is this. Understanding the true nature and consequences of sin, we should trust God as he gives us himself. Understanding the true nature and consequences of sin, we should trust God as he gives us himself. So first, we see the nature of sin, or the essence of sin. Have you ever seen a movie, or read a book, and something is off from the beginning, but you just can't tell what it is? There's something that just makes your spine tingle a little bit, you know, spidey senses come on, you just can't tell what's going on. 
Well, that's how this passage starts off for us. If you remember from last week, we ended on a high note. God has lovingly given everything that Adam and Eve need to enjoy him. And that section of the narrative ends with telling us that the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. Life is good and carefree. You can picture the butterflies, the rainbows, right, the sunshine. But just in the very next sentence after that, we're introduced to attention. The word cunning to describe the serpent is actually a play on word, a play on the word naked from the previous verse. With the word naked, we get a sense of innocence, carefreeness. But the word cunning shows us someone who knows, who is aware of many things, which throws us off. Now, this is the world of innocence. What is, what is something that knows good and evil doing here? But before we even get a chance to think about that and, and ponder that, this serpent approaches Eve and initiates a conversation. He poses a question. Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? I want you to notice two things about the question itself. First, notice the claim that he's making. What does the snake ask? It's, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Is that what God actually said? It's not even close. Not even close. Remember last week we saw that Adam, or that God placed Adam and Eve in overwhelming abundance. I ask you to picture the place that you've always dreamed about going. And to know that that is what is being described here. It's, it's paradise, where they were completely fulfilled and satisfied. And we understood that it was in this context, with overwhelming abundance and all of their needs supplied, that God told Adam and Eve not to eat from one tree. Just one. But that's not what the serpent's saying. Instead, he makes it out like God said that they can't eat from any tree in the garden. He makes it out like God has placed Adam and Eve in paradise and isn't actually allowing them to enjoy a single bit of it. And imagine going on an all-inclusive vacation, going to Cancun or something like that, and then being told that you're not allowed to eat anything while you're there. You can't go to the beach. You basically have to just sit in your hotel room and not enjoy Cancun. That's what the serpent is trying to get Eve to believe. And that leads us to the nature of the question. Is the serpent just questioning a command of God? Or getting at, or trying to get clarity on the words of God? No, it's, it's deeper than that. By asking this question... The serpent is trying to get Eve to question God himself. You see, it was out of God's overwhelming love and goodness that he created the world and placed Adam and Eve in the middle of paradise. This overwhelming love and goodness flowed from him naturally because it is in his very being to be loving and good. So for the serpent to make it out that Adam and Eve can't enjoy paradise, is to make it out that God is actually not loving and good. And therefore, to question the outpouring, the outgoing love of God, is to question the character of God from which that springs forth, from which that comes. And by questioning the very character of God, the serpent is trying to undermine Eve's trust in God and his goodness and his faithfulness. If you think about sin as a house, this 
is the foundation of the house. This is the origin of sin, the clearest makeup of sin. It's the thing from which all of our individual sins spring forth. At its foundation, sin is a fundamental distrust of God. You, me, and everyone else in this world lives from that distrust. We don't automatically start with the character of God as described in Genesis 1 and 2. Instead, we are born starting in Genesis 3, 1. We're born with the mindset that God is fundamentally not good. Because he's fundamentally not good, he's not worth pursuing. He's not trustworthy, so he's worth rejecting. Once that trust is undermined, once the foundation has been set, the action of sin, of of committing sin, is easy to step into. Notice E's response to the serpent's question. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And she replies, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. First glance, it seems like she's coming right back to the serpent and is giving him what God said. She's correcting him. But if you look closely, her wording of the command isn't actually what God said. It's almost as if she is trying to make it easier for herself to commit the sin. She says three things, and all of them are just slightly off. First, she says we may eat fruit. God didn't just simply say we may eat fruit. He said you may freely eat any of the fruit except for this one. She omits the word freely. It's like she's forgetting the abundance of God and thinking of God as stingy, as not wanting to give freely. Second, she says that they are told that they must not eat it or touch it. It's not true. He just simply said, you must not eat it. She added to the command, again, trying to make it out like God is a cold judge or a cold father who really doesn't care about them. And third, she simply says, you will die. Not, you will certainly die, like God said. It's like she's already lessening the penalty of sin in her mind. And so she's added to what God said. She's omitted some things that God, have said, that God has said. And in the end, it's to make it easier. It's to convince herself that she can do it. You see, once the foundation of trust begins to rot, everything else comes tumbling down. And a new foundation is put in its place. She's now beginning to build her house on the foundation of distrust. On the foundation that questions the goodness of God. And when distrust is present, God's words now carry less weight, as we've seen, and even worse, begin to seem like something to be avoided. And now that trust has been eroded, the serpent just comes right out in direct opposition to God. He didn't start that way, but he finishes that way. He says, no, you will certainly not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he's saying, no, God, God's a liar. In fact, he's scared. He's so protective of his godhood that he's scared that you might impose on it. He's worried that you will find the power that puts you in the same status as him. 
It's a direct call against everything that we have understood about God in the first two chapters of Genesis. God saw that everything was good. He created everything good. God created humanity in his image. He blessed them and said that he has given everything to them. Everything that is beautiful and good is for them. They know God by his name, not by his title. Everything that we have read is to show us the overwhelming goodness of God. But again, the foundation of sin is fundamental distrust of God and his character. Direct opposition to God is nothing to balk at. The foundation has already been placed. And that takes us to the framework of sin, which is shown when she looks at the tree. It says that she saw the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Once a distrust of God was firmly in place, what does she begin to do? She looks elsewhere for satisfaction. Remember, as a as an intimate, good father, God himself was the source of all things good. Each good gift was a means of enjoying his love for us, which meant that true enjoyment of his gifts only took place in the context of enjoying him. They were inseparable. To enjoy God was to enjoy his gifts, and to enjoy his gifts was to enjoy him. But now, Eve's desire for satisfaction turns inward. It's no longer outward, it's, it's inward. This is displayed in the word for desirable. Uh, the word desirable actually comes from the word covet. She does not view the tree as a means of enjoying God. She views the tree as an end in and of itself. As a thing that could satisfy. And the description of the tree is all-encompassing for her. It deals with the physical, when it says that it's good for food. It deals with the emotional, delightful to look at. And it deals with the mental and spiritual, when it says that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. In other parts, her covetousness has overtaken every single part of her. This, this right here is the framework for the house of sin. Built from the foundation that God is not truly good and therefore not trustworthy, we are now part of an all-encompassing pursuit of satisfaction elsewhere. It is not just parts of us that are affected, but the entirety of our life is now dedicated to this pursuit. But why does that matter for us this morning? What What does that mean? It matters because it tells us that sin is not just an action. It's a condition. We have a tendency to think that sin is just mildew on the side of the house or leaves that are clogging up the gutter or maybe even some shingles that blew off in the wind. This passage tells us, though, that sin is not merely a blemish on a house that is otherwise good. It's the whole We don't need a a roofer, we don't need a pressure washer, and we don't need someone to clean the gutters. We need a whole new house, all the way down to the foundation. To say it plainly, if we only think of sin through the actions that we do, 
the times that we snap at our spouse, the times when we get with our kids, when we gossip, when we get road rage, or whatever else you may struggle with. If we only think of sin that way, then we are left chasing a rabbit trail for the rest of our lives. Mildew will continue to spring up. Termites will continue to infest. Instead, we need to understand that we have a condition that affects our entire being and for which the solution is outside of our control. We are talking about a fundamental mistrust of God and warped desires that are built from that. We can't fix that with a 12-step program. We can't grit our way back into a right view of God. We can't discipline ourselves back into having the right desires that drive the rest of life. Instead, if we stopped here, if we stopped at verse 6, we are left utterly, hopelessly helpless. That's what verse 7 shows us. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I may not say it outright, but the instant reaction from Adam and Eve eating the fruit was shame. In chapter 2, their nakedness was equated with having no shame. But now that they've disobeyed, they feel the need to cover up. Because it's not just a thing that needs to be covered. It's their entire being. They disobeyed and now their house is rotten. There is no way that they can stand before God. And how do they try and fix it? Try and fix it with leaves, as if, as if that's going to fix the problem. But we do the same thing, don't we? We think that if we can do the right things, or say what needs to be said, or check off all the boxes that need to be checked, then we can make up or cover up our sin. We can make up for a life that is defined by looking for satisfaction elsewhere. We try to cover up as well. We also need something more than fig leaves. We need something that will change us from the bottom up, starting with our foundation. We don't need a new coat of paint, although we may try. We need a bulldozer who can come in, wipe out the foundation on which the rest of our house stands, and build something new. We need that. Now, before we get to that, which we will get to that, we have to see the consequences of sin. It is at this moment, Adam and Eve have covered themselves, they've sinned before the Lord. It's at this moment that God, Yahweh Elohim, the personal and intimate Father, enters the garden in the cool of the evening breeze. I mean, you can imagine the scene. I'm sure we've each been caught doing something that we're not supposed to have done. Mom said not to punch my brother, but I did, and now he's crying, and I can hear her footsteps on the stairs. That's Adam and Eve here. It's pure and utter panic. It's utter shame. They haven't just disobeyed God. They they spat in his face, and so they hide. And God calls out with a simple question, almost like you can imagine your mom doing, even though she knows exactly where you're at. Where are you? Where are you? And Adam begins with the truth. He genuinely is truthful. I heard you in the garden. I heard your footsteps on the stairs. 
And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now this is met with a quick response from the Lord, a pained question. Who told you that you were naked? Did you, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you to not eat from? Now notice Adam's response, especially in light of our understanding of the nature of sin. He says, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. Who is he really blaming here? He's not blaming Eve, he's blaming God. God who has given Adam the good gift of a wife is now viewed by Adam as the reason for his guilt and shame. The mistrust has doubled down. Coming before the Lord did not make Adam come clean. Instead, he tried to shift the blame back to the only one in this situation who's blameless. And then God, being gracious to Adam and not just striking him down right there, which he had every right to do, turns to Eve and asks her, what have you done? It's supposed to read like, do you understand the gravity of this situation? And Eve does something similar. She does say that she ate, but she tries to caveat it by placing the blame on the serpent. So the Lord turns to the serpent and begins the first of three explanations of the consequences of sin. Now quickly, right before we dive into the serpent's thing, I just a little quick uh, lesson about Hebrew literature here. I know it may sound really nerdy, but it has, an, it has an effect on what this is. Essentially, this is a chiasm. Are you guys familiar with the ABBA rhyming scheme in poetry? It's kind of what's going on here, except it's with units of thought. And so it goes A, B, C, B, A. So man, woman. So God talks to the man first, then he talks to the woman, then the serpent, then the woman, then the man. Why does that matter? Other than it's a cool fact that you can bring up a Bible study anytime you want to. It matters because whatever is in the middle is the most important section of this particular narrative. It is what Moses wants us to pay attention to the most, right? They couldn't bold, they couldn't italicize, and so instead they placed it in the middle. So this is what he wants us to, to pay attention to here. It doesn't minimize everything else, it just maximizes this. And so now that we know that, let's see what God says. First, he, he does something that he's not yet done. Up until this point, he has declared things good. He has blessed. But here, he curses. The serpent is deemed worthy of a curse. He will not experience the enrichment of God, but hostility from God. God curses the animal itself, the physical animal, in verse 14. Right, where he says, uh, you will uh, move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. But we're clued in here that there's something more than a serpent is going on here. The New Testament understands this, the serpent to be Satan, either possessing or somehow controlling the serpent. So God curses the force in control of the animal. He curses Satan. Look at verse 15. He says, I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What is this saying? This is saying that there will now be a struggle that will define humanity. No longer will life be enjoyed in, in, in innocence. Now life will be defined by the struggle between Satan and God's people. There will be a steady war throughout the centuries. Not fought with uh, real weapons or anything like that. 
but fought spiritually as the people of God are pitted against Satan's line. In other words, this moment in history, Genesis 3, has now set the course for the rest of history. All of life is now infected by sin, and the result of that is struggle. It's a heavy, hurting, painful moment. But in this moment, in the midst of the crime that has been committed while the gun is still smoking, God can't help himself. Look at the next sentence. He says, he will strike your head. That is, God's offspring will strike Satan's head, and you will strike his heel. Because God is so good and kind and loving, even in this moment, he pours out his love. Again, humanity doesn't need a small remedy. We're talking about a life that is now defined by sin, defined by the chaos that God ordered and called good. We're talking about open opposition against God, about rejecting him and then doing it over and over and over. We're left helpless, left to live apart from God our Father, left to spiral further and further down into a hole that we can't get out of. We don't need a quick fix. We need a whole new house. We need Satan's head to be crushed. And that's exactly what God promises here. In the middle of this scene, God has already worked out a plan for him to defeat the power that is now at work within humanity. Even as we have rejected him, God curses Satan and tells him the victory's already been won. He resets history so that history is now no longer defined by this moment, but is defined by the moment to come. But that does not mean that Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity with them don't pay a cost for sin. Sin cannot go without consequence. The victory is promised, but it is still a future promise for them. Though the promise of victory is the most important part of this, there are still consequences to be paid. Now, if, if you'll notice, it's actually in a little bit of an eye-for-an-eye eye style here with the consequences. The consequences are directly countered to the role that both Adam and Eve played in the eating the fruit of the tree. To Eve, God says, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Her action in attempting to rule over her husband by giving him the fruit to eat is repaid with the promise of constant struggle in a marriage. No longer will complimentary help be her natural bent. She will still want to lead, and yet he will dominate. This is not just a reminder of marriage roles, just so that you guys know. The word rule here is not, just to, is not just trying to tell us that the husband will lead in a marriage, though he should. Instead, it's a reference to unhealthy domination, to the man wanting everything to go his way. And thus, the birth of marriage struggles began. And to Adam, God says, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. What was Adam's role in the, eat, in the eating of the fruit? He just simply ate. He didn't need to be convinced like Eve did. He just took it outright. His punishment is that he will no longer be afforded to be passive. Instead, life will require extra hard 
work for him. No longer will the work of ruling over God's creation be easy and fulfilling. Instead, it will be painful, hard, labor. And God ends his decrees with an ultimate reminder that sin does not come through on its promises. Remember, what was, what was Satan's promise to Eve if she ate of the fruit? You will be like God. And how does God in this? He says, you will return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. It's a reminder that we are not God. We are not the one who created all things and who pours out his love and grace endlessly. We are finite, feeble creatures made of dust and who will one day return to the dust. Sin overpromised and overwhelmingly underdelivered. And so we've seen the nature of sin, we've seen the consequences of sin, and now we see grace that covers sin. Even in the moment where sin entered the world, where God declares the consequences of sin, we see faith and grace in a real way. Adam responds to God again, this time not in rejection, but in faith. That's what verse 21 is getting at, where it says the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. It seems a little out of place. Like, why, why did he choose this moment to name his wife? It's because it's an act of faith in God who is good. Even in the midst of being told that he will die, Adam sees the goodness of God and that God will continue to allow him to live. Even if his days are now numbered, he still is able to, to live a life. And thus Adam responds to this particular grace by naming his wife Eve, showing that he is hopeful in the grace of God despite death. And God continues to show grace. And before we, before we get into that, can we just stop and think about that for a moment? Think about how, how crazy it is that God would show any sort of grace in this situation at all. It's so out of touch with how we think. Uh, just, just picture, imagine walking in on your spouse in an affair and then covering them with a blanket and proclaiming your love for them and really meaning it. Imagine taking care of their immediate needs, covering their shame and doing so not in spite but out of, out of love. It's almost unthinkable. And yet, that is what God does here. Seeing that Adam and Eve had made for themselves poor coverings, he takes it upon himself to cover them. He kills an animal and clothes Adam and Eve in it. He covers their shame. God is the husband who takes care of his cheating spouse, almost to the point of, of scandal. He is good to those who doubted his goodness. He displays his trustworthiness to those who mistrusted him. Displays his grace to those who thought he was heavy-handed. Displays his abundance for those who thought he was stingy. Bends down and showers those with affection who thought that he was scared of them becoming like him. All that God does to Adam and Eve is respond to them with grace. Even as he rightfully judges their sin. 
And as the, as the passage itself comes to a close, what seems like a bad thing is actually another evidence of grace. In verse 22, it says, The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. God is not concerned here that they're going to end up like him. Instead, he's providing grace by giving them an end to their misery, to their pain, to their suffering. He's providing an end to the madness. You see, it is, it is in death that we are finally freed from pain and reunited to God. It is in death that we will find final victory over sin and its dominion and are reunited to experience the grace of God in a real way. But how is that? Sin has eternally doomed us to death, both physically and spiritually. And the Bible makes clear that this life, the one that each of us are living right now, affects our eternity. So how are we reunited with the Father if everything that we are is now sinful? It's Jesus. As we look at this passage, just the third chapter in the Bible... In the darkest moment in human history where humanity has spat in the face of God and tried to undo all the good that he has done, we see Jesus. We see Jesus in verse 15 as he is the one who will crush Satan's head and whose heel will be bruised. Jesus is the animal from verse 21 who is killed to cover up our guilt and our shame. He's the one who sacrifices himself to make us innocent before God. Jesus is the one who guards the way to the tree of life, like we see the cherubim doing in verse 23. In John 14, 6, Jesus tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one gets to the Father through him. In fact, he actually is the tree of life. As he says in John 15, remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. He is the way to life now and forevermore. And he is the one who undoes Adam's curse. You see, Adam freely partook of the sin. He didn't need any convincing. He used his life to bring death for all who would come after him. But Jesus, the only son of God, the one truly innocent who was tempted, just like Adam and Eve were, but yet did not sin, God himself rejected and despised by those around him. He's not, he's not passive. But he actively goes to the cross and uses his death to bring us life. In his death, Jesus wiped out our old house, the one that was rotted and broken, the one which defined our entire life. And he has built us a new foundation, which is restored trust in God's goodness. John again tells us that no one has greater love than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. See in the cross the love and goodness of God as he pours himself out for us. See how much we can trust him as he doesn't just pay the cost in general, but gives himself, sacrifices himself so that we can be renewed. God the Son has secured our freedom, has given us grace, and is now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father 
sending the Spirit to empower us to love and trust Him as we build a new framework off of the foundation He has given us. All that we have done wrong has been made right in Jesus. I urge you this morning to, to look to Him today. If you've never given yourself to Him, I urge you to do so. There is nothing that you can do to make yourself better. Give yourself to the one who can. And if you're a Christian, my encouragement is to continue to look to Jesus. When sin overwhelms and you feel tempted to cover up or to make yourself look better, look to Jesus. When you look to other things for satisfaction, look to Jesus. When you come face to face with how sinful you are, look to Jesus. He is there giving himself to you and pouring out his love to you before you even turn to him. Look to the God who has taken it upon himself to undo all wrong and to reconcile us back to him. Lord, we ask this morning as we read your word. Lord, as we have seen the origin of sin, the all-encompassing nature of it, how it affects us down to the deepest part of us. Lord, we recognize that there is nothing that we can do to earn your trust back, to earn your love back. Lord, we are left separated. We are left chasing things that will never truly fulfill us. Lord, at the same time, we are thankful. As we look at this passage, we're thankful that even from the beginning, you've been working out a plan to redeem us, to root out the wrong foundation, to root out the fountain from which all sin springs, Lord, and to replace it with something new. Lord, we recognize that it is you who has taken it upon himself to restore us back, to help us to live the good life, Lord, to help us to find a true satisfaction in you. So, Lord, help us to look to you, to not try to continue to build our own framework, but to let you build the framework within us. Help us to continue to look to you for satisfaction. Lord, we don't want to make mud pies while our vacation at the beach is waiting for us. Help us to continue to give ourselves to you. Lord, thank you, Jesus, for the work that you accomplished on the cross, for giving yourself, for undergoing pain and suffering, separation from the Father. Lord, you felt, or you took on the wrath that we deserved. Lord, I ask that you would help us to trust you in that. Help us to continue to repent and believe. Lord, if there's anyone in here that does not believe in you, that has not experienced that for yourself, Lord, would you work within them? Help show them that you are good, that you are the source of all goodness and the source of all satisfaction. And for those of us who may be struggling to remember that you are good, remind us, Lord. We love you, we praise you, and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.